Football MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. You know a new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Fly Racing, Blends All Racing Motor Oil, Works Connection, Plum Creek Funding, 612 Suspension, Fast Foundry, and Pro Glow. Welcome to another episode of the Industry Seating Podcast. It is Wednesday, October 6th, 2021, and uh, yeah, a little midweek edition. Uh, wanted to kind of recap the racing. There was not a lot going on in the USA. We're in the, you know, the throes of the offseason right now, but we did have two, two races in Europe, one um, MXGP race and one MotoGP race that happened to be in America. So I guess there was racing in America, but certainly not the American motocross series, it was MotoGP, which is making the one and only American appearance in 2021. So I wanted to dive into those, give some thoughts, some observations on what I saw. But before we do, let's thank the sponsors of this podcast, Pirelli Tires, Plum Creek Funding, Guts Racing, Fast Foundry, Works Connection, use that promo code JT21 at checkout, Blends All Oils, Premier Vapor Blasting, 612 Suspension, Grant Stone Boots, Pro Glow Wash, they had promo code MOTO15, you can use it at checkout, and of course, Fly Racing. So as for the MXGP race, they were in Germany, and, and for any of you that have listened to me on Steve shows or listened to this podcast, you will know that I've spent a ton of time in Germany. Uh, probably a year or two of my life have been spent in Germany, and it's not really a place I enjoy. I would never want to live there. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends that live there and that are German, but it's just not a place that I would ever pretend to want to be uh, long term. Um, it's it's fine. I don't dislike it. But then again, I have I will not lie to you and say that it's some paradise that everybody should want to move to. Um, there are nice areas, you know, southern Germany, like Munich area is great. Uh, I really enjoy visiting Munich. You go into Bavaria, um, the southern region, you start going into the mountains towards Austria. You get into the Alps. Really nice. There's a lot to see, castles and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but, yeah, living, no thank you. I I'm out on that. Now, this track, Teutschenthal, is up closer towards Berlin. Uh, it's about an hour south of Berlin, maybe something like that. And, uh, yeah, typical German hard pack. Um, you know, if they didn't water it and rip the track, it would be really fast, really slippery, uh, you know, the roost hurts really bad. And that's just how German outdoors are. That's how most of the tracks are. You know, they have some sand for sure, especially if you go towards Western Germany, there, there's a, there are sand tracks, you start heading towards Belgium and you know how all the Netherlands and, and, uh, all the Belgium tracks are, they're just sand. Uh, but when you get into the, the heart of Germany, certainly Eastern go South, it's all hard pack. It's fast. It's really flowy. And yeah, when it's not a GP, uh, it's just not a track that I would have ridden very well, uh, point blank. It, it, I would have probably just bowed out of ever doing a GP if I had to do one there because my results would have been terrible. It's just not conditions that work for me. 
Uh, there's another track called Geildorf, very similar. And they used to have GPs there as well. And, you know, back then, the GPs, they would weave much more natural terrain. They didn't water them as much. They didn't disc them as much. And you got that typical really fast, really slippery speedway type track. And I've been to, you know, I've been to Torchenthal multiple times. I've been to Galdorf. And, man, if you are, if you're not from that, I don't even want to say Germany, but if you're not from Europe and you're not used to those style of tracks, French riders would do very well. As well. Uh, a lot of Italians would probably ride it well. It's just a really different type of terrain to get used to. And it's not something that I would, I don't even want to try. Like, it's just not something I would even be interested in getting used to, to be honest with you. Um, but I, I think it's a track where if you watch like Motocross of Nations going back to 2013, you know, the USA was pretty good, but like Dungey struggled. You know, I don't think Dungey ever felt quite at home there uh, due to those circumstances. Like the track is just really different. Uh, if you're not used to riding that type of track to be able to go as fast as they do is tough, you know, and going back to that race, Tomac was really good. Uh, he was trying to chase down Ken Roxon in the, uh, the MX two race and they were winning the overall actually, uh, of everyone and he crashed, but that doesn't really change the fact that he was the fastest guy. But think about Tomac, you know, he, he's from Colorado. He's used to that type of terrain you know and tomac's home track is is softer but if you think about colorado as a whole it, it is very similar to that fast really hard pack and really slippery so to me it makes sense that tomac would have ridden that track well you know it doesn't really come as a surprise justin barsha was also there think about justin barsha he's from new england he's from new york originally what types of track are in new york unadilla Binghamton, you know, all those New Jersey, Long Island, like they're hard pack, rocky, slippery, fast. So again, Barsha should feel, I don't want to say at home, but he has experience with those types of tracks. So those rides make sense where a guy like Dungey coming from Minnesota, where it's softer terrain, he probably hasn't had many chances to ride a track like that. And you kind of saw him suffer on the day as well. Anyway, we're kind of getting off uh, into the deep end as far as, but I just wanted to give some context to that particular track, because if you're watching, I think it's deceiving. It looks incredibly difficult to me as I'm watching it on TV. It's ruddy, but the ruts are like rock hard. It just does not look like a track that would be easy to ride. Like easy to go fast is not something I would ever correlate with, uh, with Teutschenthal, especially the name itself, Teutschenthal. How the hell do you come up with a name like that? Uh, so everything about it is just awkward and, and seems difficult. The MX2 class, I mean, this is Renault series at this point. You know, he's stretching the lead out even further. He has an over, he has over an 80-point lead now. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's done, you know. And we've been talking about this for weeks. Uh, you know, Geertz and Vial were really his two biggest competitors coming in. And I shouldn't even put it that way because realistically going into the season, everybody thought it was going to be between Vial and Geertz. Well, Geertz hurts his knee right before the season. And then Vial uh, has that head-on incident a few races in, and that changed the entire scope of the series. So since then, it was really who wanted to step up and take this thing. And to Maxime Renault's credit, he has done just that. And he's given Tom Vial all he wants at times. And I think Vial's still the best rider in the class. I don't feel bad for Renault saying that. I think most people would agree. He's the defending champ. He wins most times, 
you know, more times than not when he's on the racetrack. So why wouldn't you think that Vial is the best rider? But unfortunately, in the words of Chad Reed, you have to be in it to win it. And Vial was not able to stay healthy. Therefore, Maxime Renault's running away with this thing. So don't discredit Renault because of Vial because he has an 80-point lead. He's doing really well. I would just argue that he's, he's probably not quite as good as Tom Vial. The other, you know, the other rivals or the, the protagonists that were in this series, uh, Mattia Guadagnini is kind of falling apart. You know, he has that heroic ride for Team Italy at Mantova, and then he backs that up with virtually nothing when they go to Germany. So, I mean, his championship seems to be pretty much over. And then, you know, the other guys, Ruben Fernandez and Boisrame, and these other guys that we thought might be in contention, they're out. Like, they're, they're done, they're injured, they can't stay on two wheels. Uh, and Renault is just, he's doing all the right things, you know. And, and you can say that they've made it easy for him. I don't think he would care. It doesn't matter. None of that really matters because Renault is still riding up front. It's not like he's getting fifth every weekend and just happens to be leading the points. I think if he was like a fifth or sixth place guy and he was winning by default, that would be a different story. He's not doing that. He's winning. He's getting on the podium. The modus he's not winning. And he's finding ways to be successful, even on tracks that you wouldn't necessarily think he would. So uh, I, I give Renault a ton of credit. And I think it'll be a very interesting series if he can t- continue to progress for 2022 and Vial comes in healthy. That will be, uh, that'll be a really interesting series to watch. As for the MXGP class, of course, we had the huge crash, right? That was the story of the weekend. Um, there, there are other storylines, I, I understand. But everybody was talking about the Prado Hurlings crash and the battle before that, you know, throughout the, the rest of the day and into this week that's made all the headlines that's where everybody's attention is focused to and for me it's pretty simple like there's not a lot to really debate as far as how this went I mean Prado simply cannot make that move there you can't cross jump right there you can't move back to the right there's no room and he can feel hurlings and if you're wondering what that means and and how do I define that Inherently, as a rider and as a racer, when you're on the track, you can feel, and I'm using air quotes around feel, you can feel the rider next to you. Like there's a presence and you, you can hear their bike. Obviously, you know, Prado could hear Hurlings' bike accelerating down the straightaway next to him up to that jump. But you can also always feel a rider. And there's, I don't really have the right vocabulary to quantify it. But there's just like this presence of a rider next to you and you get so used to riding in tight confines like that. There's just like this sixth sense and a rider like Prado knows that he's there like that. There's no doubt in my mind, you could ask any seasoned experienced racer and he's going to tell you, yeah, like I, I know the guy's there. I can feel him. I can hear him. I, I sense him being there. And it's almost, you know, almost like a subconscious type thing because of the hearing and the, and your you're able to locate sound. You know, he can hear Hurlings' bike, so you know kind of where they are. And, and all these things add up into just this extra sense that, you know, people that don't race probably don't have. But for Prado, the simple fact is you can't jump to the right there. You know Hurlings is there. You know he's going to be accelerating through that jump to try to pass you. you got to leave him room. And I've read all kinds of things. I've read articles written about it. I've heard, I read a, an interview with his dad 
where his dad said that the rut sent him back to the right. And that's absolutely not true. I've watched it probably without exaggerating. I'm going to say 25 times leading down the straightaway and up to the face of the jump, because I wanted the clearest possible picture of what Prado saw, what he was doing and his approach to that jump. And he moved to the right. Like he scrubbed the jump back to the right and went right into Hurling's line. And there is really no other way to look at it. I won't let anybody else tell me anything else about it because I've seen it too much and I've, I've studied it and studied it and studied it. And I've lived that experience too many times. Prado made a mistake. You just can't do it. You can't try to close him out there. And I think that part of it was muscle memory because the race line there for Prado is to turn down somewhat to the right, right? He wants to carry his momentum over that jump back to the right. So he lands on the right side of the downside sets him and that sets him up into the next left-hand corner on the outside. Okay. So that's the natural progression of that section is he would come down the straightaway from the left side, scrub back to the right, land on the right side and enter that next corner from the right side, going to the left. That's all normal. In this scenario though, in this, in a vacuum, like this acute situation where you have this guy to your right, he's almost right next to you, you can't get back to the right, nor do you need to. You don't need to be on the right because the race is over. So he needs to jump straight there. And I think part of it was they were going so fast up to the jump. You know, they were, they were accelerating harder and longer than they would on a normal lap because they were racing to the line that he was probably trying to scrub speed. And I don't even know if he knew he was doing it. Like it, so much of that stuff is instinctual to, if you feel like you're going way too fast for a jump, because every jump on the track, you, you know how fast you're supposed to be going. And that's just from thousands of hours of, of riding. You know, I'm going too fast, too slow to make the landing on this particular jump. I think part of it was he felt like he was going way too fast. So he wanted to scrub some of that speed to not over jump by 25 feet. When he did that, that also took him back to the right even more. And if Hurlings isn't there, none of this matters. The problem is you have to be aware of your surroundings. You have to act accordingly when someone's next to you and you can't cross jump. I don't think he was intentionally cross jumping. I don't think that's what it is at all. And I want to be very clear about that, but you can't, you can't cut to the right there. There's someone there and it doesn't matter if you didn't mean to, like you have to make specific and very, uh, decisive moves in those situations. Like you have to know, okay, well, I'm just going to have to over jump here a little bit. Like you can hit the brakes at the last second, you know, you have them covered. You're a bike length ahead of them, break at the last second, jump straight and land a little bit long. No big deal. So, you know, I know a lot of people are going to probably try to dissect it and we try to do this. He didn't mean to, Oh, it's all well and good. In the end, it's still Prado's fault. Hurlings didn't do anything wrong. Prado jumped to the right, didn't leave Hurlings anywhere to go. And it, I mean, unfortunately, you know, Prado got the, the worst end of the deal, ended up in the hospital and Jeffrey, I think it really deflated him for the second moto, but Jeffrey was okay in the end. But just what a bad deal, you know, and in my notes, I wrote in all caps, you cannot do that. So it's, it's really simple. When you really break it down to the bare bones of it, you can't jump to the right. You can't, no matter what, you know, he's there. You can feel him. That's why you're going like hell 
up to the finish line jump is because you know Hurlings is on your right going wide open. So the last thing you can do is jump into his, you know, uh, where he's going to land. Like you just can't do that. So anyway, that's my take on it. Bad deal. I'm glad they're relatively okay. Uh, but I mean, Prado effectively ruined any chance for the championship now, in my opinion. You know, he's going to need a miracle to uh, to get back into this championship. And that's assuming he can even race this weekend. I don't even think he can race in, uh, in France. I, I don't know if they've officially announced it. I know they've hinted around at it. But he probably won't even race until they go to uh, go to Spain. Uh, not this weekend, but next weekend. So bummer all the way around. Uh, I actually really like Prado. Um, I think he's a nice kid. I think his progression into the 450 class has been really impressive to see him uh, graduate into MXGP class and immediately go to the front. That was just a bad move. It was just an ill-advised decision, and he paid, uh, he paid the biggest price for it. Moving on to Tim Geiser. Clearly, he was back. Uh, he looked closer to 100%. You know, the second moto, it's hard to argue he wasn't 100%. I would say... You know, my best estimation, he's close. I don't think he's, I don't think he's all the way. Um, to think he broke his collarbone a couple of weeks ago, you know, it's probably been, what, three weeks now? To think that he's just good to go, healed, didn't miss a beat, you know, the time off from riding and training didn't affect him. Like, I don't think that's reality. You know, it's, it's shades of gray in there. You know, maybe it's a couple of percent. But him at 98% on a track where it really suits his skill set, is good enough to win. And make no mistake, this track is perfect for what Tim Geiser does well. He is very precise. He rides hard pack extremely well. He can get in and out of ruts with precision and be aggressive where most people can't. And that's, that's exactly what Teutschenthal was. You know, when, you, when I look at that track, I was trying to even wrap my head around how you could be aggressive and get around that racetrack. And Maybe you just can't. Maybe you could, some could argue that you don't and you have to allow the track to work with you instead of trying to kind of beat the track in a submission. And uh, maybe that's why Geiser was a little better. And maybe that's why Jeffrey struggled a little bit more the second moto because Jeffrey wants to have the track submit to him. You know, he wants to just hammer and hammer and hammer on the track until he wins. And on most tracks, that'll work. You know, uh, sand tracks, especially if there's a lot of traction, it works. But on tracks where you have to flow and the ruts are, you know, concrete and the second motos, I don't think it necessarily is the best strategy, but that's who Jeffrey is as a rider. And I just think that track really set up much more nicely for Roman Febra and Tim Geiser and their skill set than it did for Jeffrey. And that, that's part of the reason you saw them, you know, run away to a 22nd lead. Of course, the other part is I'm sure Jeffrey was still shell-shocked from, uh, from that first moto crash. I mentioned Febra. Uh, he's just missing 1%, man. It, he's so close to winning these motos. You know, you saw him crash on the last lap in Turkey. You see Geiser just have a little bit more in the second moto uh, there at Teutschenthal. And, man, it's not much. You know, I don't know what it is, if it's a fitness thing or it's, it's just he's sprinting and running out of gas. If it's a, maybe just the setting is, is not perfect. It could be a multitude of any of those things. It could be a tiny bit of all, or it could be just one thing that he would immediately tell you. He's not going to, but you know, if you gave him truth serum, maybe he could just tell you immediately. Uh, but it, it's a, it's really close to, uh, to him finding a way to win. Tony Caroli, 
I mean, he, he just looked rusty, right? You know, I, it was a, a miracle that he was able to ride in Italy uh, for Motocross of Nations. Talked to him for quite a while, and he was crazy sore. And if it wasn't in his home country, I think there's a 99% chance he doesn't show up at Motocross of Nations. Um, I think he felt a ton of pressure to not let his team down and not let his country down. And look what they got for it. They, they won. Uh, so good for him. But you could tell he just wasn't feeling it at all in Germany. And he probably didn't want to be there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he's doing his part. He's putting in the motos. And hopefully he gets back to health. And, and I would think another week will do him a lot of good. I would expect to see him look much closer to the normal Tony Cairoli uh, as they roll into France this weekend. I did want to mention uh, Matisse Boirame. He is going to fill in for the vacant spot left by Ivo Monticelli on KRT Kawasaki. And I think that's a really good opportunity for Boirame. He had to quit. Well, I don't say quit. He had to leave the FNH Kawasaki team, which I'm sure they're bummed about because he was one of their best guys. But the opportunity for him, if he can perform, to maybe get that Ice One Kawasaki deal for 2022, that's worth taking. Uh, because they have not made a decision there, and it seems to be wide open. And if they're giving, if Kawasaki's willing to give him a chance now, maybe that lends, you know, like a, into a nice opportunity for him next year. But the key here is he needs to perform. He needs to show something, lead a lap, get a whole shot, set a fast lap time, run around the top five, do something that flashes, where the Kawasaki bosses see enough to give you a chance. That's really what it's all about. So that's kind of all the notes I had for, uh, for MXGP and MX2. They go to France this weekend, then to Spain, and then back to Italy. I will be back in Italy uh, for the race on the 24th. I was originally scheduled, well, my plans changed about five times, but I was supposed to go to Portugal, which was going to be the 24th, then go to Italy on the 31st. Then that changed. I was going to go to Italy and stay the entire time in Italy for 10 days. Uh, and I, I basically just can't. I have way too much going on here in Idaho and planning for Supercross and all kinds of stuff. So I'm going to do the first round on the 24th and then come back. So if you watch uh, MXGP on their uh, MXGP TV or on CBS Sports, you will see me alongside Paul Malin. So I'm looking forward to that, especially since it's a shorter trip. That last trip being 12 days, was uh, it was just way too much. I was really ready to come home. But a quick one, I, I'm up for. So it should be fun. Uh, let's jump into MotoGP, though. For those of you who don't watch MotoGP, uh, I, I still I, I won't quit telling you to try it. Uh, it will take some time, just like MXGP. Weird names, weird culture. It's road racing versus dirt bike racing. But there's so many similarities once you learn about the riders. You learn the personalities. You learn the trends. You learn some of the history. Uh, I mean, there's no wonder why it's the most popular motorcycle sport in the world like it that's not a shock to me once you really you know get into it like it takes time just like any other sport you've got to give it time to get into it and it's no different for me when I got into MotoGP and that was like 2012 same as F1 I started watching F1 like two years ago and I've slowly gotten more and more and more into it but it does take time you know it's so different in so many ways but once you learn about it yeah, it all makes sense. Like you can start to, um, you know, start to tie things in together and you understand like the history of some of these things and how the 
uh, the grooming projects work and why this driver is on this team because he's been with Mercedes and all the, all those little intricacies, the same things for MotoGP. You have to learn how these riders come up and, and their backstories and all that stuff. So when drama goes down on the weekend, it will be that much more relatable because you'd be like, oh, wow, yeah, like that's been going on since three years ago when they had this incident here and he hates this guy because he took his ride when they were on this team and blah, 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 right? Just an example. Um, but I think once you get to the point where you learn all that stuff, man, the world just opens up for you. Like it just gets so much more interesting. And that, that's true for anything, right? It's true for any sport, any hobby, any interest whatsoever. So as for MotoGP, of course, the big story was Mark Marquez winning. And if you have watched Coda, which is the track in Austin in the past and Circuit of the Americas, for those of you who may not know, Mark has absolutely owned this track. He's won every single time he's been there but once. And the only reason he didn't win two years ago when they were there is because he crashed. He had a 3.6 second lead or something, 3.9, whatever it was. And he crashed all, all on his own. And you want to talk about somebody's jaw dropping? That was me. I could not believe it when he crashed two years ago because he was gone. Like that, that was, I mean, so out of character for Mark. But he made up for it, comes back this year, gets it done. And I mean, it was true Mark Marquez fashion, gets to the front early, makes some really nice passes right at the beginning of the race, and really was unchallenged. You know, Fabio tried to show him a wheel a couple times, but nothing serious. And yeah, just kind of rode away. Kind of, I, I felt like he was just at his own pace and he just steadily, slowly, but surely rode away from those guys. And uh, that's, that's, you know, vintage Mark Marquez right there. And I guess the real question is now, are we going to see more of that or was it just because we were at Austin? Because he's been so good there, it's really hard to know. Because you could say the same thing leaving Germany at the Saxon ring. He's been incredibly good there too. Like he's almost unbeatable and he won there this year. And then he struggled after that. Not the same guy. Trying to just get in the top five. Trying to get on the podium. Then we go back to another track in Texas where he's dominated. And guess what? He's that guy again. So I don't know. You know, there's a lot there to unpack as far as he just got a new chassis. Was that the difference or was it just being in Texas again? I don't know. So we're going to learn, right? There's three races left. They go back to Mazzano in uh, two, two weekends off and they, they go to Mazzano and then they go to Portugal and then they go to Valencia in Spain for the finale. So hopefully we'll get some answers. Um, Championship-wise, Marquez is out. We all know that. It doesn't matter. But I think long-term, to see if Marquez is back to form and back to, you know, like, is he going to be ready to battle for a championship in 2022? That's what I'm watching for. I want to see if Honda has taken the necessary steps forward with the chassis to give him a motorcycle that's competitive on all the tracks. And before he got hurt two years ago, was it two years ago? Last year. Before he got hurt, we knew they did. Like He could make that bike work on pretty much any track. Well, I don't know if their program took steps backwards or if they just didn't progress along with everyone else. But you could see it. When Mark came back, the bike was nowhere near good enough. And everyone that got on it, whether it was Alex Marquez or Paul Espargaro or Taka Nakagami, it doesn't matter. They were all struggling. And it's gotten better and better and better to where you're seeing Taka set some of the fastest lap times. You're seeing Paul Spargo get in there in the top 10 in qualifying. Like the, the trend 
is with Honda, right? They're, they're coming back to the forefront. So I'll be watching to see if they continue to make steps so they're a real player again in 2022. Fabio, I mean, he gets second pretty easily and he's just doing what he needs to do. Like he has a huge lead in the championship. It's all but over now. He's gonna wrap this thing up with a race to go and good for him, maybe two races to go. Good for him, he's earned it. I think he's easily been the best rider of 2021. I really like Fabio. I think he's a nice guy. Um, I've met him a couple times and I used to, I've cheered for him for a long time because when he was in Moto3 at 15 years old, I'm not a talent scout, but when I watched him race at 15, I was like, that kid has something special. Now, did I know he was going to be world champion in MotoGP? Of course not. I would never pretend to know that or be some sort of prophet. But I can promise you that I watched him back then and going, he has something that other people don't have. What he does with that is up to him. And maybe he never makes it because we've seen that. Austin Stroop and Moto guys like Nico Izzy, there's been tons of guys that never made it, never progressed to world championship level. But that was the same for Fabio Quattararo. You could just see it. You could see that he had this skill set and natural raw talent that most people will just never dream of having. So, uh, yeah, he's realizing it now. He's going to be your world champion for 2021. And I think it sets up a really nice rivalry for the next few years with Marc Marquez. And the question is, how does their relationship go from here? Because as you know, anybody who has been competitive with Marquez, as far as on a big picture level, he's had friction with. doesn't matter if it's Lorenzo. It doesn't matter if it's Rossi. You know, Joanne Mir, I'll get into in a second. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he always seems to have some sort of big rivalry with whoever that guy is. So I'm watching to see there, does, do they have this, do they take back into this cat and mouse game, right? Does that, does that come around again? That was kind of shaping up last year where qualifying they're messing with each other and they're following each other. And, and how does that all kind of play out? I I don't know. I'm, and, and I think Mark will be the instigator. He typically always is. And I'm a big Mark Marquez fan, but there's no denying that he's the one that sets out to start problems. And I think he does it competitively. Like, I think he knows that he's good at that and he's looking for an edge. I don't blame him for it. I would hate it if I was racing against him, but I think that's why Mark does it. He wants you to hate it. He wants you to be annoyed and thinking about him instead of thinking about what you have to do. As for the Ducatis, I was really surprised they weren't better in in the race like the main race they were great all weekend peko was uh on the pole on pole um i mean that you just look throughout the weekend jack miller was fastest several qualifying or not qualifying sessions but free practices so for them to not really have that in the race was very surprising um jack miller said he lost the front tire in the race which if you saw how hard he was pushing at the beginning would make sense. He was definitely overriding the tires in the first half of the race, trying to make up for a poor qualifying performance. So that all made sense. And I even, uh, as I was watching the race, I was texting my buddy saying, there's no way Jack can sustain this. Like he's pushing too hard and he's going to suffer at the end. And he certainly did. But I think he had to go for it. Like if he just waited around and saved the tires, he was going to be 10th at the end, right? So he had to kind of go for it and hope he could find a way to manage the tires at the end. And unfortunately he couldn't do it. The last thing I want to talk about here is this incident with uh, Jack and Joanne Mir. Now on the front end, 
I'm not a Joanne Mir fan. I don't really know why. He hasn't done anything to me personally. I just, I don't know, he just rubs me the wrong way for some reason. I don't like the comments he made about Mark Marquez at Mizano. Um, you know, Joanne Mir is your defending world champion. I get it. But listen, Joanne Mir is not the rider Mark Marquez is and never will be. He is not on Mark Marquez's level. And I would tell Joanne Mir to his face that he's not. I, I don't care. He beats me up, whatever. That's fine. We can get it on. But I, don't, I just don't like the things he does and says. You watch the way he races. He's always running into people. He's always making contact, which in road racing is not really a thing. Like You're not really supposed to run into people while you're road racing doing 100 miles an hour through a corner. But he continues to do it. He just runs it up the inside of people. And I think Jack Miller's had enough. I mean, if you didn't see how serious he was after the race, grabbing his helmet, I mean, Jack's ready to fight, you know, and, and Jack's a really calm demeanor type guy. So to push him to that level, you know, he's pissed. Like he is angry because this has been time after time after time of Joanne Mir making contact and he's not even beating him. Like Jack still beat him, you know, like, what are you doing? So I would be frustrated. I've raced guys like that, you know, Longtime listeners of this podcast or Pulp Mech Show know how I feel about racing guys like Vince Freezy. I hate it. I don't like the way they race. I don't like the way they go about things. And Joanne Mir to me is exactly the same. Every time you race against him, you just end up shaking your head and you want to wring his neck. So I don't blame Jack Miller. People making contact with you repeatedly gets really old really fast. It's really hard to do well when people are making contact with you mid-race. That's pretty much a hard and fast rule. It screws up your entire race. So I will be watching to see if this continues on. Um, I don't think Jack is ready to let it go yet. And if Joanne does something again, I think you're going to see serious fireworks. Like Jack was so close to losing his temper in Austin. I think that's about the last straw. Uh, And and if race direction doesn't do something more seriously, I think Jack's probably going to take it into his own hands. So that's it for MotoGP. Uh, they go to Mizano uh, in a couple weeks. It's a track I've been to in person. Pretty cool area. It's right on the coast, the uh, Adriatic coast of Italy. It'll be getting cold, so it won't be the touristy vibe that it could be during the summer, but uh, still a pretty cool track and right near Rossi's house. Um, that's why I was there. So it'll be a, a nice send away race for, uh, for Rossi, and it wouldn't surprise me if that's why they went back there, is uh, just to have another another farewell race for Rossi at Mazzano. So that's it. Thanks to all the sponsors again. And uh, we'll talk to you in a couple of days. I'm going to try to keep these podcasts going throughout all these off season races, but I know you guys need stuff to listen to. I'm the same. I listen to podcasts too and uh, didn't want to leave you hanging. So thanks again. And we'll see you. Okay.